So, just re review um, what we're doing. We're going to continue picking up again with our continuous series of apologetics. Um, if you guys remember, the last three weeks we looked at Old Testament textual criticism. I'm not going to, like I said before, I'm not going to do New Testament textual criticism because I think there's so many things out there. If you go Google, even Center for uh, Study for New Testament Manuscript, um, you know, there's a lot of things out there, right? Um, with um, with things like that and, and James White and other people teaching. I think there's a lot less of the Old Testament because I, I don't want this to make it a year and a half long series. Um, I thought we'll just at least lay it down, things that we don't talk a lot about Old Testament. But just remember, reminder of how we divide our apologetics into various units, okay? Um, our first unit um, was really looking at the uh, worldview apologetics, which I think is n no discussion of evidence or history is ever in a vacuum. It's always in a world of worldviews. That is what you believe about reality, um, how we know things, um, even values, ethics, and stuff like that, okay? So we looked at that for about 10 weeks. Then we set things up about even now Unit 2 is the history part. We've looked at how even you can't even do history without the Christian worldview, that there's other worldviews and religions that if you believe it, it actually undermines even the pursuit of studying, the endeavor to study about history, okay, would not make sense, okay? Um, for instance, if your worldview is nihilism and everything is meaningless, there's no point of even studying history, right? Um, there's a, you, know, um, you might as well go to a grave and count how many blue rocks there is underneath someone's grave versus someone's life uh, uh, where that person's buried, right? But we make all these decisions of values and stuff like that that shows our worldview comes in the studying of history. Then we've looked at um, even how to give evidence in a presuppositional fashion, um, as much as I love presuppositional apologetics, there's that part I love of the worldview part. But at heart, I've always loved history. So um, I want to make it clear that in talking about apologetic, presuppositional, it's not as if it's against evidence. We're not giving it in a fashion that's naive evidentialism, okay, or simplistic evolution, uh, uh, evidentialism of just that. But we also want to be conscious of people suppressing truth. Um, they're sinful and everything else. And how do we do this in a way that's tactical and, and a good steward of the evidence that we know that of Christianity? So then we looked at uh, Old Testament, specifically three weeks of how it is that we know that the Old Testament words are word of God today. So we're going to slowly transition um, this now to the New Testament. Today, I'm going to be making an argument of why, um, of why Old Testament, we're going to look today, if you're writing down the uh, headline for today, or not headline, the title for today, not headline, sorry. Uh, the title for today is Old Testament Argument for the New Testament, okay? Um, Old Testament Argument for the New Testament. I think this is a good part of uh, Christian apologetics too because you will deal with some people that will say certain things like, if you know, I remember when I was at UCLA, um, there were a lot of um, non-believing Jews, okay? Um, both that are very secular and those that are also orthodox, okay? Or, or ultra-orthodox. And, you know, the argument come up, they'll say like, why would you guys have the extra New Testament? Prove to me. So I think this is, fits into apologetics in the sense of like saying, hey, why do we believe the New Testament is needed or even anticipation of the New Testament as part of Scripture? Okay, so this is part of fitting this, especially kind of sort of like a worldview thing. If you're witnessing to someone that's Jewish, sometimes they'll say, no, we only hold to the Tanakh. And you guys add all these things and, you know, none of this should be part of Scripture. Well, but I would actually argue today that if you read the New Old Testament carefully, it actually in some sense anticipates the New Testament, okay? Anticipate the New Testament. So this fits in our apologetics in the sense that, for instance, you're witnessing to those that are Jewish. Why do we believe this? And this also fits in, for example, even with Muslims. 
right? They believe they added another part after Old Testament, New Testament, believe in the Quran. But then they'll sometimes press and say, why do you believe if you don't want the additional revelation of the Quran, but what, what justification do you have for the New Testament? Now, our reasoning for that is very different than what Muslims argue why there must be additional revelation. So part of that is also for us is to be conscious of why is it we believe there is a New Testament revelation um, with that. So I think this is how it fits in our worldview apologetics, okay, um, with all of this, okay. So I hope today, even as we look at this, I think this also should, um, even without considering, you know, um, Judaism or Islam, I think even for us to say, hey, how do we, why do we, when we read the Old Testament, do we anticipate that there is even New Testament, even as just us as believers itself, okay? So today, we're going to see six reasons. How many reasons? Six reasons, okay? For why we believe the New Testament is anticipated as Scripture when we look at the Old Testament, okay? We're going to see today six um, reasons why the Old Testament anticipate the New Testament as Scripture, okay? Six reasons why the Old Testament anticipate the New Testament would be part of scripture, okay? Six reasons, okay? Hopefully we'll be able to go through all these, okay? So I don't have a PowerPoint. Sorry, I barely finished in time. Um, so I wasn't able to make a PowerPoint. Um, but these are going to be the reasons if you're taking notes, okay? Um, the reason number one might be a little bit wordy. Um, I think when I eventually have it online, the outline is probably going to be less wordy. Um, so, because I didn't have time to make it homiletically look more neater, okay? So, point number one is Deuteronomy 18. Anticipate the prophet like Moses who will give more word of God, okay? I know that's a little long-winded way. I'm going to have to modify that later. But Deuteronomy 18. Anticipate the prophet like Moses who will give more word of God. Okay? Deuteronomy 18, anticipate the prophet like Moses, who will give more word of God. Okay? Deuteronomy 18, or if you're just simply taking notes, you can just write Deuteronomy 18. Okay? Deuteronomy 18, anticipate the prophet like Moses, who will give more word of God. Okay? Point number two, the pattern of redemption followed by revelation there's a pattern of in scripture that whenever there's redemption there's god giving revelation is what i'm trying to say okay point number two the pattern of redemption followed by revelation um revelation meaning god's word okay um the pattern of redemption followed by revelation that's point number two am i going too fast um we're good okay um and then point number three isaiah Anticipate the Messiah will give more word of God. Isaiah, anticipate the Messiah will give more word of God. Um, that is the book of Isaiah. Anticipate the Messiah will give more word of God. Okay? Isaiah, anticipate the Messiah will give more word of God. That's point number three. Point number four is first through second chronicles. First and second chronicles. Leaves us with a cliffhanger. First and second chronicles leaves us with a cliffhanger. Okay? Um, there's a sense where you read um, first and second chronicles. I'll explain more why this is significant. But it leaves us with a cliffhanger that makes us kind of anticipate there must be a New Testament. Okay? 
So point number four, let me repeat this again. First and second chronicles leaves us with a cliffhanger. First and second chronicles leave us with a cliffhanger. Okay. Point number five, Malachi leaves us with a cliffhanger. Malachi leaves us with a cliffhanger. Okay. Malachi leaves us with a cliffhanger. And then point number six, the pattern of a new covenant followed by revelation. Okay. The pattern of a new covenant followed by revelation. Okay. The pattern of a new covenant followed by revelation. Okay. Um, the pattern of a new covenant followed by revelation. Okay. So that's point number six. Okay. Let me repeat these real quick. I know because today is a little bit wordy and I don't have a PowerPoint presentation. I'm going to repeat them just for instructional purposes. Okay. So, um, Point number one is Deuteronomy 18, anticipate the prophet like Moses who will give more word of God, okay? Um, point number two, the pattern of redemption followed by revelation. And then point number three, Isaiah anticipate the Messiah will give more word of God. Point number four, first and second chronicles leaves us with a cliffhanger. Point number five, Malachi leaves us with a cliffhanger. And point number six, the pattern of a new covenant followed by revelation. Okay, so let's look at point number one. Um, let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 18. And the significance of this, if you look at the structure of our outline, is we're really going from really um, the beginning of the Old Testament to the end. Okay, now I know granted Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the uh, Bible. And when you look at um, the order of how our page is arranged, in terms of table of content. But really, when you consider this, this is Deuteronomy is part of the book of uh, the book of Moses or the law of Moses, okay? Which would have been really the first five books, so to speak, or the early books of Scripture. Depending on how you um, date Job, something that's the earliest part of the uh, uh, Bible, I think that's very likely the case, okay? Um, but here we see, at least in the early parts of God's revelation, if this is true that Deuteronomy 18 anticipates a further revelation that would come up upon the time of the New Testament when there is a Savior that comes in New Testament, New, co um, correction, New Covenant economy, right, uh, of how God works. And therefore, this is incredible that really what I'm trying to argue for, if all these things, six points, follow that from the very first early books of the Bible to the very last books of the Bible, there's an anticipation of the New Testament as part of God's word, okay? So if you guys with me in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, so I could catch my breath, um, Jesus, would you be able to be my motivated reader to read me Deuteronomy 18, verse 15? Um, Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, and then later on I want to ask if possible, Chris, are you, if you're able to read the next verse, give me a thumbs up, okay? But for now, Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. Um, verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, from among your own brothers, you must listen to him. Amen. Okay. Amen. So what we see here is, uh, what we see here is, there's a prophecy that um, Jesus is saying, uh, correction, Moses is saying, there will be someone that will be a prophet like me. Okay. Um, part of our series, I don't know if I've gone over this before for our series, um, where we've looked at even how Jesus parallels Moses in so many ways. Okay. Um, I think we'll deal with that when we get to the Messianic apolog uh, Messianic Prophecies portion of our apologetics uh, unit, okay? Which is like the next unit, unit three, okay? But here for now, we see there's a prediction that there will come a prophet 
that will be from among those who are Jewish that's going to be comparable to Moses in some ways. There's parallels with Moses, okay? And on top of that, notice the end. It says what? God says, you shall listen, okay? You shall listen, okay? Now put your pinky or thumb and turn with me real quick to Matthew chapter 17, verse 5. Matthew chapter 17, verse 5, okay? Matthew chapter 17, verse 5. When we turn there, I want to ask if Chris might be my motivated reader. And for the next one, if I could have voluntold, the next one is Mrs. Byrne. Would you be able to be the next reader after this? Okay, thank you. Okay, Matthew chapter 17, verse 5 for now, okay? Matthew chapter 17, verse 5. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Okay. Um, here I think is God uh, speaking about in the transfiguration. He's appearing, right? Not God the Father appearing, but he's verbalizing audibly to the people that were there to identify that Jesus is the one that Israel's been looking for. And notice that one of the words that says is a command is to listen to him. Now in the Greek, this same verb and phrase appears the same way as in the Greek translation of Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. So I think what's going on here is, I actually think Matthew 17, 5, what Jesus is saying, what God the Father is saying here, is actually saying, this is the one that is talked about, that you got to listen to him. Okay, So turn back with me again to Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. If God the Father identified that Jesus is the one, okay, Jesus is the one in the transfiguration that is the one like Moses and he is a prophet then and if you listen to him you can't listen to someone unless he what says something right he speaks he uses words which shows here that there is an anticipation that when the Messiah and I think this prophet here is actually talking about the Messiah not any ordinary Jewish prophet but the Messiah if he comes over and he will be speaking and he'll be giving God's word and we got to number one listen and by the way just by his very own vocation as prophet he's already speaking God's what word so there is an anticipation that when there is the economy of the Messiah where God uh, sends the Messiah to come over there will be God's word being spoken and when God's word is being spoken by him and is written down we would say that's God's word or in another way of saying God's word written down is what? It is scripture. Thus, there is this anticipation of the uh, New Testament that is to come. Way back already in the time of Moses, in the book of Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. Now, let's now look. If you're still with me in Deuteronomy 18, okay? Look with me three verses later in Deuteronomy 18, 18. Okay, Deuteronomy eighteen eighteen. Okay, I've asked Mrs. Burton to read. If I could have the next reader, um, Mandy, would you be able to be a volunteer for the next? Re- okay, or volunteer for the next reader? Thank you. Okay, cool. And then right now, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, okay, Deuteronomy eighteen eighteen. I will raise up from them a prophet from among their brethren like you, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Thank you so much for reading that, okay? To make it even more explicit, God is saying, He's not just only saying He's a prophet, but He's saying, I will put my words in Him, in His mouth, and He will speak them everything that I commanded, okay? So here, um, by the way, in church history, um, early church history, people have always taken that this is talking about Jesus, that Jesus is the one that fulfilled this, okay? 
Uh, again, note here, God saying, I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to him everything uh, to them, everything that I commanded. Now, if these words are spoken by Jesus and it's God's word and it's recorded down in, uh, in writing, that written word of God is what we call scripture. One more time, my argument is there is this anticipation of a New Testament that God's revelation would at least appear chronologically in time. Now, just by reading Deuteronomy 18, you can't know for sure exactly when. It doesn't say there'll never be revelation before. There obviously revelation before the Messiah would come. That's the rest of the Old Testament. But definitely, at least in Deuteronomy, that there will be revelation and even a scripture that's being anticipated, that is written when the Messiah would arrive. Okay, so this we see here. Okay, um, that there is even within the book of Deuteronomy an anticipation. Again, do not miss the awesomeness of this that in early on even the old covenant there is an anticipation of already scripture would be given in as what we would later call the new uh, testament okay so um that's argument number one okay argument number two is uh why do we know there or why do we believe there should be a new testament that comes over as god's word as our apologetics, as our second line of argument, is there's a pattern. So point number two is this, the pattern of redemption followed by revelation, okay? There's a pattern in Scripture that whenever God redeems, He delivers or He saves, following that afterward, even and sometimes even before, but definitely afterward, there'll be written, what? A scripture, okay? Written Scripture afterward, okay? So there's a pattern. Again, let me say this. Um... Redemption, we could call that deliverance, salvation, or exodus, or whatever else it is. Then afterward is God's word that's being written down. Okay? Could you guys think of any example? The most obvious one that I think runs throughout a recapitulation through the Old Testament, the main arch one is what? The Exodus story, right? If you think about it, the story of the Exodus, is probably the second best known story in the Bible. Okay, outside of Jesus Christ dying for our sin, it's the second best known. And I think the third one is like the story of um, Noah's flood or something like that. Okay, so there is a pattern here. Okay, there's a pattern. And by the way, I think that structure of uh, there's biblical theology. Um, people have written articles and journals and books about how when you look at the Old Testament, there's a sense where there's a structure in, in the Old Testament and later on even the New Testament. Um, I actually do think there is a new exodus a motif and structure even in the book of Mark. As much as people sometimes in biblical scholars and even those that might be more progressive may say, oh no, Mark is very primitive. I think when you look at it, um, there's um, there's a fine commentary um, through the Old Testament eyes in published by um, Crago. Um, one of their first volumes is actually Mark, and he goes over how there's so much embedded Old Testament in there, right? And I'm so convinced afterward, like, wow, there is a new Exodus motif that Scripture uses again and again and again and again, okay? So the first one is what? Exodus story. I mean, we know the story of Exodus, do we not? Okay? Um, Exodus is, is what the story is. They were in slavery. The Hebrews were in slavery for 400 years. I'm, I'm summarizing Exodus, okay? Then God delivers them, right? Sends Moses, delivers them. Um, and that whole story of the deliverance or redemption is where? Exodus 1 to 15. And then there's like these wandering for a little bit. And then afterward, God gives his verbal word. From Exodus 20 onward is, is his Old Covenant, Old Testament laws, okay? Old Testament laws, okay? So that's where we see this pattern, okay? So again, there is redemption. Then follow redemption is what? Revelation. 
God's written word, okay? But that pattern also appears also once more. Now, God also gives oh, God's word sometimes before his deliverance, right? Like, for instance, God sends Moses and says, let my people go to who? To um, Pharaoh, right? So, in the same way, even in God's Old Testament history, if you guys remember, God says he will discipline Israel. If you look through Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26, God lays down these blessings and curses, saying, if you don't follow me, these things will happen. If you follow me, all these blessings will follow. But if you don't follow me, one of the other punishment is also that God would even bring about exile of God's people from the land. Okay, So the first exile, what is it called? I remembered it as ABC. Okay, This is my ghetto way of trying to memorize things. Is the Syrian captivity. Then the Babylonian captivity, then Caesar's captivity, which is the Romans. But C is just to make it, I don't know, I'm a preacher. Three points, make it some way memorable, right? So that's where we see with that. And each time when God says he would, for instance, with the Babylonian captivity, who are the prophets that warn Israel, or correction, uh, Judah, to repent? Otherwise, there'll be the Babylonian captivity. Do you guys remember? Where, who are some of the prophets? Mrs. Burton, you said something? Uh, unmute, sorry. Daniel. Daniel, okay. Okay, yeah. Um, he was already in captivity, but yeah, he, I mean, he, he definitely is talking about that, okay? Um, another one is what? Is Jeremiah, right? Okay. Uh, Daniel is a good example, too. Is an example of what I'm trying to say is after even God's discipline, God afterward says he's going to deliver them from captivity, right? And bring them back. And even then, there's written down scripture. Right? The book of Daniel records that. Daniel 9, right? He's, he's praying to God. He's crying, hoping for the repentance of his people. And God now gives further revelation. And then has, you know, Gabriel re revelation. And therefore, it's written down. Right? So, same thing. Jeremiah is the same thing. All these things. Okay? So, when they did come back. By the way, when they did come back from the promised land, was there anything that was written down afterward? When, uh, when they came back from exile? Are there any post-exilic books in the Bible? In the Old Testament? Besides the New Testament, there is, which is what? Uh, the way I remember it, um, I, if, um, I, for our church, this was probably on Sermon Audio. I don't have time to go over this. Um, we did a series where we did a survey of the, all the books in the Old Testament. The first part of the series, I feel like uh, I'm, I'm a guy that, um, I'm a rock, okay? I love the Marines and the military. One thing is, I always love one thing in the military is, they always feel like we can never expend anyone. Everyone, we need to make this as Barney style as possible. To, we, need, we cannot throw away guys, and we need to make it as Barney, or at least the Marine Corps, we call it Barney style, right? As Sesame Street as possible so that everyone gets it, okay? So the way I remember the Old Testament is 593-5593, okay? What I mean by that is the first five books is the Law of Moses, nine books later on of history books before exile, then three books post-exilic, which are the three history books after exile, is Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Ezra, Nehemiah, God delivers them and brings them back to Israel, uh, um, the promised land in Jerusalem. And then God tells them, write these things down. What God has delivered them, building a wall, city wall, and allowing them to have victory over even enemies. And even and then the book of Esther is there to say, even for the most um, Jews that never came back, God was still watching out, right? Because it's about the Persian Empire. Okay, then five nine three, and then the five um, books of of um, 
uh, poetic books, right? Those are your pro Proverbs, Psalms, all, all those, okay? Wisdom books also, and, and counter-wisdom books, okay? With Ecclesiastes. Then afterward, five major prophets, right? That's your Jeremiah, all those big books of prophecy. Then afterward, there's nine small books of prophecy, what we call minor prophets, that are pre-exilic, before the exile, the Babylonian. And then the last three, post-exilic books, is which, uh, a prophet books, is which one? Very good. Someone says... I'm just kidding. Uh, someone said, or you know, is what? Um, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, right? Those things is God delivers them, and then he also gives prophecies also as well, okay? So you see this pattern. Do you guys see this pattern? Where um, every time God delivers and saves, he has scripture written down, okay? Scripture written down here, okay? Um, with that. So that's the pattern. Now, in... In terms of biblical history, in terms of redemptive history, what is the greatest event in biblical history? Is it the Exodus? I mean, that's a great event, but then that's not the greatest event, right? Um, as great as God being bringing people back from the promise uh, to the promised land, there's something even greater. And I love what Mrs. Burton says: the resurrection, right? And of course, the resurrection presupposes that Christ died, right? His death and resurrection. In, in essence, the Messiah's first advent, coming to save us from our sin. That's the greatest part in history. Now, if all those other uh, moments in redemptive history are so important that there's this pattern of redemption and revelation, would you then expect that in the greatest redemption of all, Christ saving from our sin, there definitely would be scripture written? Yeah, I would say yes. So this is my argument why even within the New Testament model, the, there's this motif, redemption, um, followed by Revelation. This is why we also anticipate the Scripture being written down, what we call the New Testament. Okay? Um, that's the greatest event of Scripture. Wouldn't there be, definitely be, if God has made Scripture reveal and interpretation, explain that, and also application, why would God's Word not be the same? And by the way, the New Testament structure is also the same way. Right? It's almost the same thing. It's also almost like a new Exodus motif. God sent Christ to save people. And the deliverance, the historical description of that is in the four Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then Acts shares that news going out and then saying, okay, in light of this, how do you live your life in light of God's um, grace? Then you live your life by these commands that's um, application and meaning and application, which is explained in the epistles. That's almost like Exodus 20 on. So this new Exodus motif is, a, uh, is the bone structure also, if you will, or the skeleton structure also as well for the New Testament also as well, okay? I do believe, for me, one of, you know, sometimes we, we hear presuppositions, including myself, say the Word of God is self-evidencing. Um, and it is. I think the Word of God is self-evidencing. Even as an atheist, when I first read the Beatitudes, the Word of Jesus, I felt like this must be the Word of God. This must be the Messiah. There's self-evidence in that way. But I think self-evidencing of Scripture is not just a cartoon version. You just read the Word and that's it, right? It's also, I think, self-evidence in the sense that there's some kind of intelligent design, even within the structure at a literary um, criticism level of, wow, the beauty and the structure. This is, this is so well intelligent. This cannot have been just 40 random yo-yos writing Scripture. But there must be one ultimate author behind the the. 66 books that God has written through 40 authors in three continents in three languages over a period of 14, 12 to 1400 years, okay? Or, or whatever years you date, okay? 12 to 1600 for some of you guys, okay? So um, we see this. Again, my second line of argument is the pattern of redemption followed by revelation um, is an argument 
for this, okay? Let's now go to reason argument number three. The third line of argument is also when we look at Isaiah, there's an anticipation the Messiah will give more word of God, okay? Um, when we look at Isaiah, there's certain different parts of verses in Isaiah. Then if you read it, it talks about the Messiah. It anticipates the Messiah. But also, it's not just only telling us about the Messiah, but one of the dimension of what the Messiah would do is actually give us God's word. Okay? And of course, if he gives us God's word and God's word is written down that he wrote, we would call that scripture. And that scripture, after um, the time of the Old Testament, we call that New Testament. Okay? So let's turn real quick with me. To Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 to 3. Okay. Um, I think I asked the next reader would be Mandy. Am I correct? Is that the one? Okay. So the next reader, if I could have volunteered, if possible, is after this is Caleb. Give me a thumbs up if you could be the next reader afterward. But for now, Mandy, read us Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2 to 3. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and the nation shall flow to it and many people shall come and say come let us go up to the mountain of the lord the house of the god of jacob that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths for out of zion shall go forth the law and the word of the lord from jerusalem yeah, amen. Okay, thank you so much for reading that. Um, Isaiah is written 700 years before Christ would have been born and, you know, his ministry and everything. Um, here, I, I know there might be some different interpretation. Some sees that it's way future. Um, some sees it might be possibly Christ. But I think at the very least, what I'm trying to establish minimally is there is at least an Old Testament anticipation that in Jerusalem, the word of the Lord will go forth still. That there's still going to be more scripture. Now keep this in perspective. Isaiah was 700 years before Christ was born. Isaiah um, the, it has 66 books. Its overall message is to tell us what? That you know what? Israel, you need to repent. Otherwise, God is going to judge with the Assyrians and also later on the Babylonians. Okay? So with this is the first 39 chapters is telling us primarily the bad news. We got to repent to God. And in the good news... Um, overwhelmingly is chapter 40 to 66. Now I say this as a general rule of thumb because even in the bad news part of chapter 1 and 39, the good news is so hard to keep back that there's so many gleaming of... In fact, I think most people know the good news of Isaiah is for the first part, right? Isaiah seven fourteen during Christmas time, right? The Messianic breath of Jesus. You know, a, a, a child will be born, you'll call him Emmanuel. Isaiah 9, 6, right? A, a, a son will be born, he'll be called all these things, right? Um, mighty king and uh, mighty God and all that. Okay, but here we see even in the midst of this There's an anticipation that God's word will be declared coming forth still even though the first 39 chapter says yes You know Israel and, and Jerusalem. They will be judged. Um, all these things will happen. There will be uh, a Captivity there'll be an exodus, um, right? They'll be taken away. They need to repent um, Stop their idolatry all these things still nevertheless. They will one day be restored they will be one day be what, guys? Re restored. And yet, from the mountain of the house of the Lord, right, in Jerusalem, still, God's word will still go forth. So there is this, at least, uh, anticipation that God's not done with Old Testament history yet. There will still be scripture given post-exile, okay? Let's now get even more specific, okay? That's just a big summarized view. But now let's even be more... Um, I think less interpretive issue is I think is very explicit that when it comes to the time of the Messiah, when the Messiah comes, he will give God's word. 
And if God's word is written down, we call that scripture, which went, then would be New Testament, okay? Isaiah 11, chapter 1. Okay, let's turn to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, okay? Um, Caleb's going to be reading this, but I want to ask for the next reader if possible. Um, actually, I'm going to ask my daughter, Rebecca, afterward. Okay, Is that okay, Rebecca? Okay, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Okay. Um, and then, you know, here we see there's this prophecy, okay? Uh, and if you look a little further, the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, you know, the Spirit of the knowledge and all these things that he will be doing, okay? Actually, I think I wrote down. Um, Okay, actually, verses 4 also as well. Sorry, I should have read all the way verse 4. Verse 4, I'll just read this. But righteousness, he would judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Okay, so here is a description of the Messiah. Okay, and in this description, he's called that. We, how do we know who he is? Is he will come from a genealogy that include from the line of Jesse. Okay, the line of Jesse. Um, we see this in verses 1, right? He's also called branch, okay? Um, branch. By the way, the word branch is in Hebrews Nazar. I actually do think there's a play on words in the New Testament that later on when he's born. Um, why Nazareth, right? Is I think there's a sense where he's saying that this is one of the ways, if we say Jesus of Nazareth, you're saying Jesus of, of the, uh, of what do you call it? Um, the branch, right? Okay, so going back on uh, with this, the prophecy among the this is not an ordinary person because in verses four, out of his mouth will come what? I mean, this theme of like his mouth will strike people, will judge people, right? Um, as you see in verses four, um, would even judge. So, and I think that's actually God's word. Um, so when you read this, some of us might say, "Well, this sounds like Revelation." By the way, Isaiah came first. It's not sounds like Revelation. Revelation technically sounds like Isaiah. It's barring the theme of what the Messiah's description is here, okay? So there is now here, the Messiah is actually described in a way that he gives the word of God. Um, both even to judge and, of course, even to save, right? He'll strike them out. With, and, and here, in light of this, I actually think um, a dimension of the Messiah's ministry is actually giving God's word, okay? It's giving God's word. So if... The Messiah is going to give God's word, and those words were written down. If they're written down, we will call God's word written down Scripture. And thus we would anticipate that there will be in progressive revelation over time, that there will also be, when the Messiah comes, Scripture that's written down, what we would call New Testament. Okay? Um, let's also look with me real quick to Isaiah 61, verses 2 to 3. Uh, correction, verses 1 to 2. Rebecca, could you be my happy, motivated reader to read for me Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 2. Okay, Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 2. But the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to captives captives and freedom to prisoners to proclaim the favorable gear of the lord and the day of vengeance for of our god to comfort all who mourn 
Okay, thank you so much. Did you see Marma's message? Mm -hmm. Okay, she saw it, Mrs. Burr. Okay. So here we see that one of the predictions is the Messiah will come. He'll be, uh, when it says the Spirit has anointed me, right? The word, by the way, the word, t title for Jesus, Messiah. Messiah actually means in Hebrew, literally the anointed one. Okay, it comes from verses like these, okay? And that the Messiah, how do we know? There's six characteristics here, right? Various things that he's going to do. He's going to free oppression. He's going to notice, but notice also as well how many verbs that involves words, right? There is proclaim that it says here, right? He brings good news, okay, in verses 1. He's proclaiming, and in verse 2, he's proclaiming again the favorable year of the Lord, right? And he's comforting, which involves words. In other words, a big component of the Messiah is actually God's word, okay? By the way, this would later be quoted by Jesus. If you look, turn with me just for um, sake of time. I think we have time. Turn with me real quick to Luke chapter 4. Uh, Luke chapter 4. Jesus, after he was, um, he went to battle Satan with the temptation in the wilderness, he comes back, okay? If you look in verses 10, uh, correction, in verses um, uh so, oh man, this is pretty bad to do things on the fly. Um, 18. Thank you so much. For verses 18, right? Um, he's, oh, sorry, I'm in Matthew. That's why I was like, oh, I just preached on this. How come it doesn't look the same? Okay. Uh, Luke chapter um, uh, 4, verse 18. Thank you, Ms. Mandy, for, for that save. Um, right? He's quoting here from the, in the synagogue. He's reading this passage, and they're looking at him. And notice what he says, verse 21, that uh, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Of course, the people are amazed. They're like, who is this? We recognize this guy, right? And, of course, they went from awe to what, ready to crucify him. That's just the nature of what? Of human nature, of uh, the crowd, right? They, at one moment, want to crown you. The next moment, they want to cancel you and even literally crucify you, right? So here we see, of course, this is going to be a controlling theme of the rest of the book of Luke. It's trying to show hey, he's going to free the oppressed, those who are demon-possessed, right? He's going to be able to proclaim good news. He's going to minister to the poor. All these people, he's going to do all these things. If you wonder why Luke, what is the purpose of Luke, is yes, he's telling us history. But he's also, in light of this, saying Jesus has fulfilled this. Okay, so in other words, this is why scripture is added to show us that the Messiah, if there's redemption, there will definitely be what? Revelation. Okay, so and again, Isaiah anticipate this going back to Isaiah 61 showing uh, this. Okay, so that's third line of argument. But there's also a fourth line of argument. We're going to go now. Um, we're not going to read all these passages. But if you guys could look at your table of content and look, turn with me to first chronicles in the beginning okay i actually think point number four argument number four is first and second chronicles leaves us with a cliffhanger that if you look at first and second chronicles it leaves us with a cliffhanger in the sense that if you look at it you would actually um anticipate so actually put your pinky or thumb in first chronicles first but also still look and turn back with me there because we're going to go back and forth um you guys could use a bookmark or a pinky or thumb or i don't know um, your tax form and put something there. And we're going to be looking at table content and also um, First and Second Chronicles, okay? To preface this po uh, point again, point number four is First and Second Chronicles leaves us with cliffhanger, that if it leaves us in a cliffhanger, it actually anticipate the coming of the New Testament, okay? Because if you look at it by itself, it is so anticlimactic that there must be a New Testament that follows, okay? So again, First and Second 
um, Chronicles, okay? The Jews see First and Second Chronicles as actually one book, okay? I think they split it up because it's very long. Uh, remember, uh, scroll technology was different then, so they had to split that up, okay, with First and Second Chronicles. So the Jews saw First and Second Chronicles as really one book. So if you look at your table of content, let me ask you guys in your table of content, what is the last book in the Old Testament? In our table, English, uh, and even Chinese, everyone, every Christian um, table of content, your last book in the Old Testament is what? Malachi, okay. Now I want to say this, and um, the Jewish Old Testament, the question of Jewish scripture is everything in the Christian Old Testament, okay. Now the Catholics add some books, the Apocrypha or Deuterocanonical, and we, we reject that, okay, for many reasons. Um, but our scripture matches the Jewish ones, okay. But though we have the same books, uh, don't freak out when you say, oh, why is it the, uh, my Jewish friend said there's 22 books. And then, uh, Jimmy, we have 27. Well, because the way of grouping, First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel. Okay. Um, so the other thing is while we have the same books, the arrangement of the order is different. The arrangement of our Old Testament canon, and you see Manny shaking her head because she is our Old Testament um, sister here, right? Um, with that, she knows a lot of the Old Testament. Praise God for that, right? Um, he, what we have is actually the Greek Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament um, arrangement. So for the Jews, um, in terms of the Hebrew and those that spoke Aramaic, the way they arranged this is they actually see First and Second Chronicles um, is actually the last book in the Jewish Old Testament. Okay, so with this in mind, I actually think if you are Jewish and you're going by the Hebrew arrangement of the scripture, God has arranged in a way of intelligent design to leave first and second chronicles in such a cliffhanger that it argues and it begs for more revelation. Okay, so what I mean by that is when you turn now with me to first chronicles, if you notice first chronicles begins with a genealogy. By the way, First Chronicles, I think, is not meant to just only be a provincial history of Israel's kings at that moment of that old time period. Because the history goes back all the way to genealogy to who? Adam, Seth, like basically from Genesis. The patriarchs and, and even Adam and Eve, the very first humanity. And then on it goes. But if you notice the genealogy, does it go on forever till the Messiah? There's a sense where like it leaves us cliffhangers. Like, okay, it's here. We know that there should be, and I think one way to interpret First and Second Chronicles is must be in the lens of even the Davidic covenant that there must be a coming king that's going to rule the world forever, and we call him the Messiah, right? And then when you read it, it just kind of ends, okay? Because the genealogy does not go over; it goes over various things, right? I mean, it goes to chapter uh, eight, right? Chapter nine, and then just kind of just ends, and then it picks up. The rest is history. So there's sense where you feel like, okay, well, we don't see all the way to Messiah. Well, where's the Messiah? Right? Where's the Messiah? Okay? So it just kind of leaves with a cliffhanger. With just a genealogist. Say, okay, now you're going to give history. Okay, well, I guess we'll shift gear. Okay? But then even then, if you go now to Second Chronicles. To turn with me to the very last book in Second Chronicles. Oh, not last book. Last chapter. Second Chronicles uh, 34, I want to say. Okay? Second Chronicles 34. Actually, I'm wrong. 36, okay? It leaves us, you know, all these history. There's all these bad kings and everything else, okay? Um, all these kings and everything else. And they're going to go into exile. And then there's a little bit of good news in the sense that um, someone's writing this after the exile. 
about how in verse 22, in the third, first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, God's word has been fulfilled what? The temple are going to be rebuilt. Okay? And I think it kind of leaves a cliffhanger because you're like, uh, okay, it's going to be rebuilt, but is it going to be the same glorious temple with Shekinah glory? And of course, if you know your uh, scripture in the book of Ezra, the words look very similar in Ezra with this because there's a scene that goes through and say okay now we come over and then eventually we see well this is not a glorious people they still sin just like before this temple is even less glorious than before right um because why there is no glory because if you read in Haggai which is a post-exile account when God they finally were obedient rebuild the temple there people that were old generation saw this is not the same in their crying because there's no Shekinah glory that came back so there's a sense when you read this, it leaves us with a cliffhanger and say, okay, is this it? This is it? Like, the people are still sinful. People are still rebellious. The temple is built, yes, but now it's less glorious. And we're now, there's no Davidic king at all. And the genealogist left cliffhanging. And this is why if you look at Matthew, have you ever wondered why Matthew begins, the very first book in the Bible, begins with genealogy? Now, I remember as a young Christian reading it. I remember reading the Old Testament and finally someone says to me, Hey, because I was telling this one Christian, I was reading the Old Testament. I was a non-believer 15. I was getting super convicted. I'm going to go to hell. And I kept on telling this non-believer, uh, uh, this believer, and this person said, oh, Maybe you should stop reading the Old Testament because that's kind of scary stuff. Read the New Testament. And I read Matthew and I was so confused because I felt I was reading like a, I was reading a telephone book, right? Where all these names. Now, we would miss the glory of that, right? You know, like when we were taught in English literature class, to ours began with a good hook, right? To begin with something that makes us, unless we read it in Jewish eyes, we would never see the glory of the, um, of the genealogies because it's picking up where Chronicles left and saying, finally, the Messiah is here. We've been expecting you, right? Because of the way that first Chronicles left us with a cliffhanger. Where is the Messiah? There is not even any king at this time. Um, right afterward, the temple was rebuilt. But now Christ is the Davidic king that is the one that will save us, that is the one that will one day rule forever. And by the way, even ending with the temple, we know, of course, um, even with Matthew 1, right? Part of the temple is God is with us. This is why the theme, when God is born, Jesus is born, he says what? Um, his name will be Emmanuel, meaning God is with us, right? The first of the opening of the book and the end, of the book ends of Matthew, Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Jesus says what? Go and make disciples of all nations. And what's the last word for encouragement? I am with you, right? This theme of presence with this, okay? Um, with all of these things, okay? So I think First and Second Chronicles anticipate. If you're reading from Jewish arrangement of this, it, for, um, First and Second Chronicles, um, First and Second Chronicles leaves us with a cliffhanger that begs for the New Testament to arrive. Okay, let's go to uh, fifth argument. Okay, fifth argument is this. Um, Malachi leaves us with a cliffhanger too. Even with the Greek Septuagint ordering of the arrangement of the um, Old Testament books, that is our regular books, I also think Malachi leaves us in a somewhat of a cliffhanger also as well, that in a sense anticipate that. Okay, turn with me real quick to Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 to 6. Okay, again, this is post-exilic prophet Malachi, okay? Um, if you need help, go to Matthew, turn left. The last book is, is right there, okay? Malachi, okay? Malachi is a short prophetic book, minor prophet, okay? If you're in Malachi, there's four chapters. Look with me in verses 5 and 6. 
It says, Behold, if you're reading this from a Greek translation of the Old Testament, or if you're reading this in our own Bible, it leaves us with this cliffhanger. It says, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of their children to their fathers, so they, so that I will come and smite the land with a curse, right? That I will not come, right? And you're like, okay, so there's going to be someone that's a new Elijah? That's going to be, as we see in Matthew 3, 1. He's a messenger that prepared the way for the Lord, the way for God, really the Messiah, uh, the divine Messiah to come. Who is this guy? If you read this, you can't help but to say, oh, I can't wait for part two. Okay, I can't wait for part two. You guys ever who remember the first time watching Star Wars? Uh, again, I'm not a like, Star Wars geek. I know some people use that for sermon illustration. I feel sometimes it could be overdone, like how people use sports um, analogy for sermons, right? I remember watching um, the second movie, The Empire Strike Back, okay? And then it leaves a cliffhanger. I mean, the guy's hand, what's his name? Luke was cut, his hand's cut, and it just leaves it. was like, okay, that's it? Okay, and I was just thinking, man, I can't imagine those guys in the original 70s. They have to wait for two, three years before they finally have this. And I think something like this similar here too in the Old Testament. It leaves us with a cliffhanger. Who is this new Malachi that's going to come, that's going to preach, prepare the way, and point people to Messiah, and also turn, you see verse 6, the last part, turning, what, look at again verse 6. What's the last part saying what? That they will turn the hearts of their fathers to their children. And who is that? Turn with me real quick to Luke chapter 1, verse 17. Right When you get to the New Testament, it tells us who that is. That is John the Baptist. Have you noticed in John 1, 17, we, uh, Luke 1, 17, this might not be as quote as often as a messianic fulfillment of old to new, but it says it is he who is a forerunner before him, who in the spirit of Elijah, to turn the heart of the father back to the heart's um, to turn the hearts of the father back to the children and the disobedient, the attitude of the righteous, so as to make a people prepared for the Lord. You know what we see here? The prophecy is John the Baptist is the one. So there's an anticipation. And even in the New Testament, why did he quote? Luke quotes as to say, he is the one. If you have your Bible, some of your version would even have this in all in caps. It's not because they're angry, okay? We don't want to have millennial reading uh, hermeneutics of reading text. It's actually the Bible way of saying this is quoting Old Testament. Amen? And saying this is the fulfillment. John the Baptist is that prophet prepared the way of the Messiah. And he points to Jesus' Messiah. Okay? So we see even Malachi leaving with a cliffhanger anticipates and makes us realize. And the last point, oh man, for the sake of time, there's also a pattern of a new covenant followed by revelation. Okay? Every time God gives a covenant, there's wor words written down because there's stipulation of what God as the Lord of the covenants. I don't have time to go over this. Um, I know Manny could explain it far better than I can, right? Of how there is this vassal uh, um, Lord and vassal relationship, okay? With those that are covenant keepers and in the covenant Lord, okay? And every time there's also written down to say, how do you keep the stipulations and, and with, to abide within the covenant, right? What is the first covenant we see? Oh man, this is a trick question here. Um, what's the first covenant we see in the Bible? I know some of you guys probably say Adam's covenant. That's another story, another time. I'll spare that for now. We're not going to have dispensational covenantal debates, okay? But the first verbal one where it says covenants is actually, um, where it actually says the word covenant is um, is Noah's. If you guys remember Genesis 6 to 9. I think the meaning of covenant is to cut, right? Like it's to cut like... 
Yeah, it uses the so verb. Uh, I think to make a covenant is literally the verb uh, bereath, uh, uh, to cut the covenant. Um, yes. Uh, so in Matthew, uh, not Matthew, I'm saying Genesis 6, right? There's that covenant. And then after Genesis 9, right? He also says what? A, from now on, no one should ever be, um, you know, uh, if someone takes a life, you take a life. That's a, you know, death penalty is implemented, that kind of thing. All those stuff, right? The next covenant is Abrahamic. What Mrs. Bird mentioned, Abrahamic. Did God have it written down? The, yes, right, recorded. Okay. Then also Mosaic. Is that written down? Yes. Okay. Um, then afterward is um, well another one. I, I, I'm not going to list all of them. Okay, for the sake of time, because there's uh, all these theological discussions that happen right now. Okay, because I know some are covenantal and dispensational and all that. Okay. Um, there's Davidic, right? There's also um, Eventually, there's anticipation of the new covenant, right? The new covenant is anticipated even in Jeremiah, okay? Um, where Jeremiah says, right, um, 31, 27, Behold, days are coming, says declares the Lord. Behold, when I was sold the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of mankind, the seed of animals, right? And then verse 31, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And we see every time there is a covenant, new covenant make, there's going to be new documents written of Scripture. Right? So in the same way, right, Davidic covenant comes, boom, there's a recording of all this. And even the Psalms, I actually think, is a Davidic um, document. Um, some of the ways we see some of the Messianic prophecy, I think, is the grander picture is a Davidic covenant drivings it to say we should be anticipating with the Messiah as David like David will be like okay so in light of this I think all these arguments shows why we believe the New Testament is arrived so that when we get to the New Testament we could say we've been expecting you Jesus and also we've been expecting you the New Testament also as well